Hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. My name is Abby Nichols and I'm really excited to welcome Emily Kane onto the podcast this week. But before we get into background about her, please be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Fly on the Wall Pod and shoot us an email with any questions or comments at flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. So now about Emily Kane. She was in the main House of Representatives from 2004 to 2012 and was the minority leader during those years. And she also served in the main Senate uh, starting in 2012. And now uh, she is the executive director of Emily's List, an organization that works to elect progressive pro-choice women to office up and down the ballot across the country. So excited to welcome her onto the podcast this week. And so here's Emily. I am so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Of yeah. course. Really excited to have you on campus and welcome back. I know you haven't been here in a while. We were chatting before the <laughs> podcast, uh, but super excited to have you here in, uh, in Georgetown's campus. It's as beautiful as I remember it, if not more. Awesome. Um, so just to get us started, we'll start in your time in Maine um, in elected office. So you served in the House of Representatives from 2004 to 2012, and you were the minority leader for a couple of years in there, as well as the House Chair of Appropriations and Financial Affairs. Um, and in 2012, then you also were serving in the Maine Senate, which is awesome. So you were first elected at 24, which is really quite impressive. Thank um, you. Yeah. What was it like coming into uh, the state house at such a young age? Well, you know, I think it's it's important to take a step back because when you are a young elected official, mm-hmm. people assume you've always wanted to be in politics. And for me, that wasn't true. Uh, I actually, my undergraduate degree is in vocal music education. I'm trained to be a K through 12 music teacher. Mm-hmm. I'm a singer. Uh, and it was while well, I was doing my master's degree at the Harvard Graduate School of Education following a passion for higher education, particularly issues of college access, success, affordability, quality, and also the ability to get a job and thrive in the economy after college, that I began to put together uh, the pieces and sort of connect the dots that actually all the things I cared about were not just issues that face college students and college campuses, but were issues that elected officials were trying to tackle every single day and quite frankly, not always doing a great job. And so it was in spring, it was May actually of 2004, as I was wrapping up my master's degree that I went to see my state senator uh, at a Kentucky Derby party of all things. <laughs> True story. I was even wearing a hat. You know, up in Maine? Is that... uh, everywhere. Uh, actually, really? Kentucky Derby parties happen oh. wherever you throw them. So <laughs> I was at a Kentucky Derby party. My state senator named Mary Cathcart was there. And I thought, I'm going to seize this moment. So I went right over to her and said, Mary, I'm finishing up this master's degree. I'm very passionate about public policy. Uh, you know, I've, I want to work in public policy. I'd like to see, could you help me get a job at the state house? maybe as a legislative aide, or maybe even in the Department of Education. And Mary looked at me, Her she and her husband were there, and her husband, Jim, said, Emily, have you ever thought about running for office? And I said, no, but I'm not one to rule things out. And so I said, no, but you never know, maybe someday, who knows? And Jim said, Mary, I think we found our candidate. I said, for what? And uh, they then let me know that the state house seat in Orono, where I lived, uh, would be opening up. And it was just about to be announced. And they asked me to run. I then went home and I talked to my fiance at the time and said, gosh, I'm going to write Mary an email. I then did the most stereotypical thing 
I now know women do when they're asked to run for office, which is I wrote her a nice note and said, Mary, I'm so honored, but I'm sure you're talking to a lot of qualified people. Let me know how I can help. Emily Kane today would be like, just say yes, go run for office. <laughs> but I, I didn't know Mary, to her credit, wrote me back and said, Emily, uh, we, we weren't joking. Please say yes. And I did. And so that was um, May 23rd, I believe. Uh, June 10th, I finished my, I got my graduated. Uh, I, July 1st, I started a part-time job at the University of Maine. July 6th, I became a candidate. August 15th, I got married that year. Wow. I took six days off from door knocking to uh, get married. And then I got elected November 2nd and went to the state house for the first time in my entire life as an incoming elected official. I actually had to uh, map quest the directions and print them <laughs> off because phones didn't have things like maps on them then. Mm-hmm. And in 2004... And I went to the state house for the first time as an incoming elected official. And when I got there, uh, I was the youngest member elected that year. Um, and from the very first day, found that most people were happy I was there. Some people were really confused that I was not an intern. Um, I often got asked, you know, so which office do you work in, honey? Well, the, the one upstairs where they vote, that's the one that's my <laughs> office. You know, and, and what I found was it wasn't that people were... Generally, they weren't ageist. They just hadn't met a 24-year-old who might run for office. Mm -hmm. And so uh, what was it like? It was amazing. And I found so many ways I could follow my passion for support for for higher education, for reducing student debt, for growing the economy. Um, And that just led me down a path, particularly with the state budget, where I was able to really dig in to making sure the state of Maine's priorities were straight um, and was proud to serve 10 years there. Yeah, you actually hit on one of my questions to me. Being so young in the state house, what was the biggest challenge? Like, was there a moment where it really clicked to you and said, "Oh, maybe this is why young people don't do this," or "This is why it's such a, a big hurdle." That's a good question. I, I'd say there are a few challenges. I mean, one is just that people look at you and they make all the wrong assumptions, right? When you're a young person who runs for office. Number one, they assume you have always wanted to be in office and that you spent your entire life planning to run for office at age 24. Wow. That was not true. Not even a tiny bit for me. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, they assume you majored in political science and always did student government. Neither of those things were true for me, right? Mm-hmm. They, they also assume that you only, they sometimes assume you only care about young people issues. Also not true, you know? Um, whether it was caring about the tax code or the roads and bridges in the state of Maine, caring about the water quality or or wanting to break the cycle of domestic violence. There are issues that face the people of Maine that people of all ages care about every single day. And I think that's true all across the country. Uh, It was, like I said, it was interesting. It was not, um, well, it was pretty common that people would assume the wrong things about me, right? Also about whether I was staff or kind of the intern thing, or they'd say, so when do you graduate from college? I was like, well, I've graduated twice already. Like I, <laughs> but maybe there'll be a third time. Who knows? And, but what I found was it wasn't that people were mean. They were genuinely interested. They just didn't know. And so I always thought it as an opportunity to change the assumptions people make that maybe the next time they met a young person in the state house, they wouldn't assume that they were there to intern. And I'm really happy. I mean, when I was there, there were only five of us at the time under the age of 35 in the state legislature. Now there are dozens in the main legislature who are young. And um, I knew I was making progress when, as I finished in the legislature, I was 34 in 2014. 
Mm. And they were having sort of meetings of the youth caucus and I wasn't invited <laughs> um, because there were so many people younger than me and I had been there so long. So I think that was meant that was a sign of progress. And, uh, and I just, I just think it's so important for young people to put running for office on their to-do list. You know, I, I didn't have it on mine until somebody put it on there for me and suggested it. And I think we'd be better off if more young people got involved. There are challenges. Certainly, you know, you're in a legislature, it makes it difficult when they only pay you about $10,000 a year in a state like Maine to be yeah. in the state legislature. So you have to work. I had worked at the University of Maine. I had a wonderful job there. But one of the barriers to young people running is certainly finances, mm-hmm. um, especially when you have student debt. And I think, uh, and also just sort of a lifestyle. It's not something you, you think of um, unless somebody points the way. So you kind of touch on this um, a bit with um, how many more youth are getting elected and how many more are serving in the legislature, but how else did you see the institution change over the decade you were there? A lot, actually. I mean, with more women coming into office and more young people, uh, and also I'd say more people who were not retired, right? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, Maine, the Maine legislature, because it doesn't pay a lot of money, and because of the schedule, it's really a... It's a two-year term, and you're in January through June the first year, and January through April usually in the second year. But that's that's tough, right, on mm-hmm. families. And I think there's been a deliberate effort in the leadership to make sure that schedules can be more accommodating to families. As you see people with families who've gotten into leadership, uh, we just for the first time actually since I've been there, but I'm really proud that they did this, with a woman Speaker of the House, Sarah Gideon, and at the time, the Majority Leader, Aaron Herbig, uh, who had a baby while in office, they finally created a space for mothers to nurse, which they had never had before in the Maine State House. And I think we have a long way to go into making governmental institutions something that uh, structurally work for everybody, right? Whether that we think about childcare, or we think about the schedule you keep, or you think about the pay, you think about all these things, they, they all are in some ways barriers to diversity entering into elected office. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I will even say, you can look at the Congress this year, you know, in 2018, we now have, we elected 34, Emily's List helped elect 34 new women to the House. And for the first time ever, there are, there were two women who were, were elected in their 20s. Of course, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but also Abby Finkenauer from Iowa. Mm-hmm. There have been men in their 20s elected to Congress. There have been, I'm going to forget the exact number, so I'm just going to use around hundreds of men in their 20s elected to Congress since the beginning Mm -hmm. of time. But it wasn't until 2018 that we had the first two ever women in their 20s. And I think that just speaks to sort of the the structural um, sexism that is inherent in some of our government structures and our political system, Mm -hmm. but also the fact that that these are just not places that have thought about women or thought about young people or thought about diversity um, for the most part in a long time. And I think that's changing. And every time we have somebody who's successful and they're young, they make it a little easier for the ones who come behind them. So other than ushering in this era of change in, uh, in, in more women running for office and, and more young people running for office in Maine, what would you say is your proudest accomplishment or moment from your time serving in the legislature? I think my proudest moment as a leader is what I will say, because I certainly am very proud of some legislative things I championed, right? Right. The record investments in research and development for the state, very bipartisan 
legislation to to conquer and try to tackle the issue of domestic violence in Maine. But as a leader, I think my proudest moment actually came, sort of unlikely, in 2010, I thought I was on track to become the 100th speaker of the Maine House. I had the votes. I was working my tail off every single day uh, to, to help make sure that my caucus could hold the majority and that I could become the speaker. And in 2010, of course, there was a Tea Party wave all across the country, a conservative yeah. wave. Yeah. We end up with Governor Paula Page in Maine, mm-hmm. who was elected with 39% of the vote that year. And the Republicans took the majority in the House by a slim margin for the first time since the 1970s. And the job of speaker was no longer available to me. And I decided to seek the position of minority leader, a position that no one had held in my party since the mid-1970s. And mm-hmm. there was no playbook. There was no guidebook. There was really hardly anyone to even ask, how do you do this, right? right? Any, yeah. any advice for me, right? Except from the other side of the aisle. And I am very proud of that two years because not only in that two years did I work to recruit and build what, what at the time was the largest campaign effort around House Democrats in Maine, and we successfully took back the majority. But in that two years, even from the minority I like to stress every single day with my caucus that we had as much responsibility to lead as if we were in the in the majority. Absolutely. And and that meant that I, I refused to be the party of no. I would say we we would say not that, but this, and here's why. We never went into a meeting just saying no. We always came in with an alternative. I'm so proud that in that two year period, because of bipartisan work, we were able to defeat every single anti choice piece of legislation that came up in the House that year. Wow. You know, we were able to defeat the bathroom bill and protect the rights of transgender Mainers to use bathrooms all across the state of Maine, right? Even from the minority, we were able to lead with our values. The other saying we had that I, we, we adopted that I loved, still love, was we would win quietly and lose loudly and on the same side as Maine people. Then if we were going to win something, because we were in the minority, we were not going to celebrate until it was all over because... They could take it away, right? They have mm-hmm. the votes. Um, but if we were going to lose and we were, it was not going to go our way, we wanted to make sure the people of Maine understood why we were not with the other side. And so we, we worked hard with that. And, you know, as a result, I had a, a great relationship with my Republican counterparts. In fact, every Thursday night during the legislative session, I had dinner at the same table at the same restaurant every week with the Republican speaker. Bob Nutting, the Republican Senate President, Kevin Ray, and the Democratic Minority Leader in the Senate, Barry Hobbins, and me, every Thursday during session for two years. And we wouldn't talk politics. We'd talk about our families and why we do this work and what's important to us and how we got here. And, you know, Barry's an accomplished attorney in energy. Kevin's family owns, I believe, what is the longest running and oldest stone ground mustard mill in the country, Ray's Mustard. Bob Nutting had been a pharmacist, a successful pharmacist and a business owner in central Maine. And my background in higher education and in in really helping to grow the economy across the state uh, through research and development, and also my background in the arts. And we had so much to talk about and much more in common than our differences. And I'm really proud that we were able to establish that tone um, and camaraderie because it really could have gone a different way. 
there's certainly some lessons in there for uh, national politics, for sure. Well, I'm glad you said it, but not me. But yes, I think, I, I think so. And again, you don't have to compromise your values. Right. Right? I never compromised my values or asked my caucus to do it. Mm-hmm. Right? But you, you lead from a place of your values. And it's a lot better than leading from a place of just not what they want. Right? On the other side. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think as a result, we got a lot more done than anyone expected. And then we got the majority back. And so uh, it was a win-win. Absolutely. Even in a tough time. Yeah, that's awesome. You definitely showed bipartisanship isn't a taboo word. It shouldn't be. I mean, but I'll tell you, it's hard. And I watch what's happening here on Capitol Hill and what's happening in state houses all across the country. And and the, the, the... the really hurtful rhetoric that's coming particularly from the top right now, I think it makes it hard to even start that conversation. I actually think mm-hmm. you can see, and I'm no expert, but you can see the Republicans on the Hill. It's like they, they can't even start to work with the Democrats because their own guy is going to come for them. you know. And I think that that's just not the way it should be. Right. Well, you provided the perfect segue because you recently moved from Maine down here to the district. Well, you know, I go home every weekend. Do you? Yeah, my husband is still there. Oh, <laughs> and wow. my dog. So you, so you I, I've been dog. awake. It's Monday. I've been awake since four o'clock in the morning. Wow. I yeah. flew down here on the flight from Bangor, Maine, uh, which I take every Monday, most Mondays. And yeah. I stay, stay and I go home Thursday night or Friday to get back to Maine. So I'm kind of... I'm kind of one both. In, one I'm in. still a Mainer. I still vote in Maine. I still pay taxes in Maine. I still live in Maine. Yeah. Um, but I, I spend my weeks here. So I'm sorry. Okay. Your well, question. Yeah, yeah. You relocated your work environment. I yes, I have. Use. Yeah. Um, so I work in D.C., but I live in Maine. There you go. Mm-hmm. I, it's a good way to be proud of it. Um, and now you're the executive director of Emily's List, uh, which, as most people know, but I'll, I'll say it um, for the podcast, an organization that works to elect progressive pro-choice women up and down the ballot all across the country. Mm-hmm. So uh, you're now one of the big players in the national political game, uh, as well as state and local and, and mm-hmm. uh, county level uh, politics all over the country. So how do you think your experience serving in elected office as an elected official um, and as a woman and a young person who, who rose in the ranks uh, in elected office um, lends itself to such a successful term so far as the executive director of Emily's List? Well, a little background for those who are listening, because Emily's List, you know, have you heard of Angie's List, the like yeah. company that like you can get small business contractors yeah, from? I, I, I want to clarify what Emily's List is because we still mm-hmm. get calls for Angie's List at our office on a regular really? basis. Yes, because all for for your listeners, all lady names are not the same, <laughs> um, which sometimes can be confusing. So Emily's List is actually the nation's largest resource for women in politics. We were first we were founded in 1985 at a time when there had never been a Democratic woman elected to the Senate in her own right. We were founded by a woman named Ellen Malcolm here in Washington, D.C. with her friends, sitting around a table, probably like the one we're sitting at now, mm-hmm. talking about how they were frustrated and wanting to do something about it. They had heard time and time again stories of women candidates putting together good campaigns who were told by sort of party leadership, you'll never be able to raise the money, honey. So sorry, don't bother, wow. or, you know, or we're going to have a man who can run. He's got a better network, and it was harder for women to raise money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Emily is not a person. Emily stands for early money is like yeast. It makes the dough rise. <laughs> and they founded themselves to help put together small-dollar contributions and help women get, get elected and start their campaigns. And Barbara Mikulski, elected senator from Maryland in 1986, was the first Emily's List candidate. Um, and since then, it's just been gangbusters, right, since then. And so for me, coming into Emily's List as the executive director in 2017, 
it's the first time someone has been hired into the top leadership at Emily's List um, who is a former elected official and a former Emily's List candidate. The woman I work with every day who's my boss, the president of Emily's List, Stephanie Shriok, is amazing. She, you know, she was a chief of staff on the Hill in the Senate. She two times uh, defeated a sitting Republican incumbent in Minnesota and in Montana uh, in Senate races. She has raised hundreds of millions of dollars to support our mission, which is to elect pro-choice Democratic women to Congress. And so, uh, actually, to office, which includes Congress and Senate and state and local and mayors and governors. All over. All of the above. And so um, I'm the first person who brings this profile to the organization. And I think it has made a positive difference. I try to bring the perspective of someone who has had Emily's List sitting at my dining room table talking with me and my husband and my family about what it means to run for office, um, the best ways we can support candidates. I spend a lot of time talking with, I, I like to recruit, so they put me on the phone a lot of times with prospective candidates so I can, so I have instant credibility on this issue. I can tell them what it's going to be like to do 30 hours of call time a week. Right. Mm-hmm. Right, and or, or more at the end of, of the quarter. I can tell them what it's like to hire a staff and how you shouldn't hire that person who's been your friend a long time. You should hire someone who, with experience uh, running a campaign who will do what's right for you. Mm-hmm. I, I can tell them what it's like to be an elected official and help them think that through as they're making the decision to run where so many women, particularly last year who ran, had never run before. Um, and I think that brings some instant credibility for me with the candidates and also helps our staff to better understand the way we help our candidates and how it's felt on the other side. I'm very proud of the team at Emily's List. We had a, a record-breaking year for us at every level, and we're only going to keep getting stronger. Yeah, um, so you also segued nicely into the next question, which was <laughs> the record-breaking year 2018. Um, I believe you mentioned earlier it was 34 uh, women uh, or Emily's List candidates to the House, which yeah. is awesome. Mm-hmm. So how did your work specifically at Emily's List contribute to that amazing wave of women in 2018? So Emily's List, with our mission to elect pro-choice Democratic women, has been electing women to governor's mansions and mm-hmm. Congress and uh, state houses for a long time. But in 2018, actually I should go back, in 2016, we, like a lot of Americans, thought that Hillary Clinton would become president of the United States. She didn't. Newsflash, in case anyone didn't know that. Um, and uh, we, I wasn't there then, but for those who were, you know, they talk about how, how hard it was and how sad everyone was. I was sad too. Right. Um, and we, at Emily's List, we'd always been an organization that went and recruited women to run for office. We would mm-hmm. actually go beg them sometimes if we had to, to say yes to running for office. Um, and when Donald Trump was elected and Hillary Clinton lost, everyone at Emily's List was pretty devastated. And then about a month after the election, uh, one of our staffers was going through some inboxes and found the inbox of the message on our website where it said, sign up here if you're interested in running for office and maybe attending a training. Um, And when Hillary Clinton was at the top of the ticket, we'd had our best year ever of women reaching out to us to say they wanted to make a plan to run for office. And in that two years, we'd had 920 women say they wanted to run. We thought that was amazing. Then Donald Trump got elected. And within one month, more than a thousand women signed up. And we thought, well, that's funny because that was four clicks into our website. So we moved it to the front of the website, obviously, and put it Mm -hmm. on our social media. And I'll just cut to the chase. But we're now up over 46,000 women who have signed up 
since wow. 2016 to say they want to make a plan to run for office. Mm-hmm. And so the wins we saw in 2018 were really the, resu- the result of us taking action to make sure we were ready for these women. We've been doing this for more than three decades. Mm-hmm. So what we needed to do was scale up. We more than tripled the size of our state and local campaigns program we, uh, to support more candidates. We helped ultimately flip seven chambers right. and elect mm-hmm. hundreds and hundreds of state and local officials. We tripled the number of pro-choice Democratic women governors from two to six, including my home state of Maine, yeah. which I'm very proud yes. of. And you know, we, we put three, we elected three women to the Senate, uh, two uh, flips in Arizona and in uh, Nevada, and then also elected Tina Smith uh, for her first election in her, in, from Minnesota mm-hmm. in her in your home state of Minnesota for the first time. And what we saw in the House was as this momentum built, we kept meeting these extraordinary candidates running in districts where people said they didn't have a chance. People like Lauren Underwood. Lauren Underwood, who's representing Illinois' 14th Congressional District. Those are the western suburbs of Chicago. She is from Naperville, Illinois. She's a 32-year-old African-American nurse who had worked in the Obama administration on the Flint water crisis. Lauren, after the Obama administration ended, went back to Naperville, got a job as a nurse, and attended the one and only public town hall her member of Congress had in 2017 where he promised he would not vote to take away protections for pre-existing conditions. As a nurse, this was something Lauren cared about. She also herself has a pre-existing condition that is controlled with medication with her heart, I believe. And she believed him and went back to work. And then he voted for the version of the health care bill in Congress that took away protections for pre-existing conditions. And she said, no way. Started to run for Congress. This is a district that has never been held by a person of color and never been held by a woman in its entire history. Lauren Underwood started running this campaign. She defeated five men in the primary, which she won by double digits. We, We endorsed her in her primary. She then took on this general election where people kept saying, how can she win there? That's a pretty suburban white district. You know, I mean, somebody like with her profile, how could you? Well, she did. I, I was there. I campaigned with her a few weeks before the election. It was electric. The, the number of volunteers showing up to her race. I'm telling you this longer story because it is emblematic of what 2018 was about. Then right. I show up at this rally on a Sunday, rainy Sunday. There are more than 60 people there to canvas in the rain for Lauren Underwood. And a woman named Karen followed me out of the building and said, Emily, I need to talk to you. She introduced herself And I said, well, how's it going? And she said, I need to tell you something. I need to tell you that I don't do this. And I said, Karen, what what do you mean? She said, I have been working from home by myself for 42 years. I don't talk to people. And I knocked on doors yesterday for Lauren Underwood. And she started crying. And I hugged her and I said, Karen, and that's why Lauren's going to win. And she said, I was so determined that I brought the flyers in with me to Home Depot to talk to the cashier about it too. And she started laughing and I said, Karen, are you going to go again? She said, I'm going tomorrow. I said, amazing. But that's the story of 2018. It was not, it's not just the women who won. It's the quality of campaigns that they ran, which is where Emily's List comes in to help make sure we're doing it right. We help recruit, we help identify, we help get these women ready. And then it's about putting those campaigns together that allow women like Karen to show up and help. 
And the story of 2018 is about the women who won, but also the people who, who helped them get there. Um, and we saw that happen. You've got Sharice Davids, who won, you know, one of the first two Native American women ever elected to Congress. And she beat a Republican incumbent in Kansas, in Kansas City. Kansas, right? Uh-huh. In Kansas. Yeah. Amazing. Right? You'll get Debbie Mukarsel Powell, who flipped a seat in Florida. Look at the veterans who were elected, like Mikey Sherrill in New Jersey. Right. That's my Chrissy, district, yeah. There you go. She's amazing. She's I, incredible. I did a rally there. But Chrissy Houlihan, who, who was elected in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, by the way, who until 2018 had zero, zero women in their congressional delegation. It's a big state, in case you hadn't looked at a map lately. Yeah. Mm-hmm. with a lot of congressional seats, and they had zero women. Now they have four. Right? Yeah. Emily's list plays heavily in primaries. We try to help make the difference. But when you see seats like Katie Porter and Katie Hill flip in Orange County, California, you know, in that in that area, seats that have been sort of traditionally Republican, you feel good. You see Kim Schreier flipped a seat in Washington. She's now the only woman doctor. You see Angie Craig, who ran twice. She lost in 16. She came again to run in 18 in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And she's the first lesbian mom ever in Congress. Right, the, the difference makers, you have Ayanna Presley and Jahana Hayes, who are the first women of color ever elected from New England. Right, right? I mean, these are, these are um, overnight changing aspirations for the next generation of potential elected officials. I would, I would argue for little boys and little girls all across the country who look up and see women who look like them or look like their moms or their aunts or their sisters on TV, you know, running for Congress. And what I'm proud of is that Emily's List has been at the forefront of that work for more than 30 years. We were built for this moment, right? And, and we, we expanded our staff to more than 100 by the end of the election. Um, we're working in more races than ever before, and we never stopped. The recruitment for 2020 started the next day, and uh, we're on it. That's awesome. Right, so I think we should go to the lightning round. This is great. Here. Uh, so it's a segment we like to do right at the end. So we're going to ask you really quick, um, usually yes or no, or like one option, whatever mm-hmm. comes to your mind, really quick lightning round questions. Okay. So the first Bring one, it. Uh, House or Senate? Ooh, I'm going to, since I haven't served in Congress, I'm going to go State House versus State Senate. Is that okay. cool with you? I'll take that. Yeah. State House. Okay. Um, DC or Maine? Maine. Okay. All day long. She yes. still lives there. Come on. Oh, yeah. If you haven't been to Maine, you gotta go. It's great. I have. So my my grandfather has a house up in a was it Bailey's Island? Oh my yeah. goodness! Yeah, what a beautiful, beautiful place. Oh yeah. Yeah. The cliffs are incredible. They're gorgeous. Even um, in the winter, it's nice. Oh yeah. For listeners at home. I've been to Acadia National Park. It is amazing. Beautiful. Acadia National Park. Mm-hmm. We have a national monument now in the northern oh. part of the state. That's new. We have lots of right. lobsters, blueberries. I can give you the full rundown of summer festivals, having attended <laughs> most of them. Potato Blossom Festival, Moxie Festival, Blueberry Festival, both high bush and low bush blueberries. Oh, yeah, we got them all. Okay. Wow. There's clam festivals, lobster festivals. I can go for days. I thought it was partially made. Moxie Festival. No, yeah. oh, everything. <laughs> That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what are you most excited about for 2020? Mm. What I'm most excited about, are you going to... Or 2019. Oh, you know, and I think... We got some state houses We we got a lot of work going on in Virginia in 2019 that I'm excited Mm -hmm. about. But in 2020, what I'm most excited about is showing the 2018 wasn't a wave. It was a sea change. That the momentum from 2018 will carry into 2020. That is, for me, defined by re-electing all those women to the House and keeping that majority, if not expanding it by a little... It's by flipping Senate seats all across the country, largely with women. Um, it's certainly about state houses and flipping those seats for 2020. And it's 100% about taking back the White House. Right. And all of the work 
really leads up to, to that. And and that's that moment in 2018 with all the women that said, is this a wave? Is this a wave? No, it's a sea change for women in politics. Um, and I'm excited to, in 2020, uh, prove that. Right. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah, well, that's yeah. awesome. Thank you so much for being on the pod. Thanks for having me. I hope to come back another time. It's great to be at Georgetown. Absolutely. Thank you. And that was Emily Kane. She was a great person to have on the podcast, and we're really excited to have had her. Before I let you go, please be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Fly on the Wall Pod. And you can email us anytime at flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. And this is our second to last episode, so we will still see you next week. Good luck with finals.